This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, as I'm sure more of you, uh, most of you are aware of, especially if you have uh, or are involved in uh, college education, the union that represents the faculty that are striking at Ontario colleges is calling on members to reject the contract offer from the colleges. To talk more about all of this, Warren Smokey Thomas is with us, president of OPSU. He's with us now. Warren, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, no, thanks for having me on, Scott. I appreciate that. So uh, initially what happened, Smokey, was that um, I guess that the, a deal was put th- forth by the colleges, then initially the union rejected it, and then they wanted it to put to a vote. Is, is that accurate? Can you give us an update here? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the colleges get one shot at what they call a forced uh, vote, and they could have done it in September, chose not to, uh, and then we ended up in bargaining. But uh, so we bargained from they came, you know, the strike started. We came back to the table last Thursday. Uh, the the team, both management and, and uh, union teams, working through a mediator all weekend long, uh, right up till Sunday night. It looked like a, a deal was uh, very very close. Uh, I saw the stuff. I don't go to the tables, but I was being briefed uh, quite regularly, mm-hmm. and I saw the uh, the pass that we made back uh, to the employer, and I thought. Gee, there you know what? There's a there's a deal here to settle this. Well, sometime overnight Sunday, the employer council, the employer side, uh, decided that that's not what they wanted. They uh, dropped. Uh, they had a press conference. They didn't show up Monday morning at nine. Our team was there waiting the bargain. Uh, the employer just uh, held a press conference at noon hour and announced that they were going to go to the Ontario Labor Relations Board and seek a forced uh, final offer vote. And they said that their proposal addressed all the union's concerns. Well, that's not true. What they did overnight was instead of forcing, you know, forcing a vote on a, on a deal that really could have been finished in two or three hours with a couple of passes back and forth on language and how to look at uh, look at some issues in the classroom that were non-monetary, uh, uh, you know, academic freedom. Uh, they said they put forward an offer that goes way, way backwards. It's a really mean-spirited bully move. They've put in concessions that are difficult to explain to the public, but have a dramatic impact on professional workers, full-time workers, people working in the system. Dramatic impact on their work life, their hours. Uh, they can do forced overtime on people. And that, you know, forced overtime is very problematic. you got a family, you know, child care issues, elder care issues. So things that attack your quality of life. No, they're banking on that they can get the membership, having been out on three weeks on strike, to, to vote for it. It's going to be four weeks now. And the, the vote will be held electronically next Tuesday and Wednesday. Well, the employer, I believe, uh, A, is, is bargaining in bad faith. Uh, B, they keep continue to lie by saying that they're sitting at the table waiting for us. I actually sent somebody down to the hotel yesterday because our folks are there. Scoured every meeting room in the joint, and they weren't there at the, at the Sheraton. So... I don't know why they would say they're there when they're not. And, and, and B, the, all they've done now really and truly is just infuriate the workforce even more because the employer got out, sure, you know, they get out ahead with their, with their propaganda, if you will. Ours is the, you know, I call it the facts, some call it propaganda, but the analysis of what people will be voting on is in, you know, where all the information sheets are being processed as we speak, the communication strategy. We'll be doing a tele-town hall meeting, which is like a huge town hall meeting, like a radio, it's almost like a radio call-in show. Uh, the members will get their phone number doing that tomorrow night. And the team and myself will explain everything to the members. And then, of course, it's up to them next uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. But my take on it is this. 
and a hope that students and family can understand. It really is about the future of work. It really is about quality education. There's some things here, and the college council really is. The labor relations are horrible in the colleges. The management teams are really are the presidents. They're, they're bullies. They see these colleges as their own little kingdoms where, where the workers are serfs. You'll do as you're told. It's a, and the, the concessions will allow them to have even more more part-time work, even more precarious work, even more sessionals. Uh, and worse working conditions, nothing, you know, not much in there to and any job security at all. So I, my message to the workforce is and the public is, you know, we didn't pick this fight, but uh, we want to finish it. And I'd say to the workforce, you might as well stand up and finish it now. Fight it out to the end. Fight it out to the end. Turn this offer down. Force them back to the table. The short turnaround on the electronic vote actually buys us some time uh, for the for the semester to actually then get back to the table, do a voluntary deal. So the employer really is just trying to force a very, very bitter pill down the throats of the workers. And I'm asking, you know, uh, really for parents and students to, to just bear with us in this process. We do remain ready, willing, and able, and indeed anxious to go back to the table because this could be resolved. This could be resolved. And if there's any deal there, like we're saying to the employer, you know, while the while the, the Labor Relations Board is planning the vote, how to do that, communicate and everything else, why would you stop talking? Come on back to the table and keep talking. So maybe there's a deal there, and then that vote Monday could be on a tentative, or Tuesday and Wednesday could be on a tentative agreement. So I'm asking for patience. This is one time, you know, when bosses are saying to workers here, you know what, take all these concessions. We're going to make your life worse and be happy about it because, We'll get the students back in the class, but that's a heck of a price. That's a horrible price to ask the workforce to pay to end the strike. So uh, the workers are, you know, like we keep close tabs on the picket lines. Uh, they're furious, not at the union, not at the students, but uh, you know, and certainly feel really, you know, feel badly for the students, but they're furious at the employer because the employers use this tactic in the past. This is what they always do, right? They act like they want to get along. They kind of, you know, we get to believe in maybe they actually want to they've come into this century in terms of labor relations. And then at the last minute, they just prove that, wait a minute, they're still, they want to dictate, not negotiate. And they just that they're dictatorial. And uh, that's just the wrong way to do bargaining, labor relations, the wrong way to manage colleges. So uh, help the parents, students understand this. What has been accomplished? What has not been accomplished? What is still outstanding here? Because, again, we've talked talked about ratios. We've talked about academic freedom. Uh, What else? All the the only thing left was uh, was to have a letter of understanding and how to deal with the, with the debate internal debate on academic freedom. Everything else was resolved, with the exception of you know language change. You know how you're going to format it, just the usual typical uh, stuff. To, you know, just to work on the on the formats. So everything was there. The, it was cost neutral for the employer. Our team was creative, found ways to have them do things uh, that you know that mitigated their costs. The last thing there was, and there was, uh, I thought, a hybrid agreement on the uh, on the uh, 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 academic freedom language that the employer, uh, I'm told, you know, we're told uh, from my chief negotiator, the employer seemed uh, amenable to it. We were amenable to it. It was a compromised position on both sides, but something happened overnight on Sunday night on the employer's side to make them change their mind and pull everything off the table, put concessions back on. So I just asked parents to think about this. I'd ask, ask the college presidents to answer this question. Maybe they could call in on your talk show and answer this question. If you were a parent, because a lot of those people that work there, uh, 
or, or have kids, but a lot of students have parents. So if you're a parent, would you ask your son or your daughter or your sister or your brother, or would you yourself vote for a contract that makes life worse for you, that makes it worse than it was before, and would you would you vote for that? Uh, those college presidents, I asked this question on radio in Ottawa. Well, I asked the college president this: Would you ask? Would you say to your son and daughter, vote for this contract, even though it's, it takes away your rights, even though it makes life worse? Would you vote for it? I think most people would say no, don't vote for it. A few more days is not going to affect the outcome on the on the uh, on the uh, on the semester one way or another. And again, but I would ask the students and parents and everything get on the MPPs of all three strikes to get on and phone those college presidents, email them, say get back to the table because I'm telling you, I, I've done this for a long time. The deal was there. I was shocked. I was flabbergasted on Monday morning at lunchtime when they made that. And I, was, I just just bowled me over. I, I, it's one of the most egregious examples of bad faith bargaining I've witnessed, in, and I've been doing this for years. Do you know what I mean? Like so. So just ask people to try to be patient with the workforce. It's not their fault. And they're just trying to hang on to and make life a little better. Because if you get sessional, like, so the thing around job security net, you get more stability in the people that are teaching in the classrooms. Do you know what I mean? There, we had some improvements there on the time that they would get to spend with students uh, to, to you know, help students out. Like These are people that are teaching maybe one course, two courses, those like the sessionals. Mm-hmm. So... It was there. I, I I I am honestly at a loss. I just I just uh, I don't I don't know I don't know what's in their minds other than they're displaying the same kind of behavior they did the last round of the bargaining, the round before that, the round before that, and the round before that. Uh, so you're telling members not to vote for this on Tuesday and Wednesday. Do you think that'll be the outcome, or is there no way to, to gauge that at this point? I I I believe the mood is there to vote it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I it's uh, life is never predictable. It's uh, it's, it's up to the members. We'll put the facts in front of them, put the recommendation from the bargaining team in front of them, and then they get to make their decision. Whatever the decision they make, they're the membership. That's the decision, and that's it, and that's the decision that I'll support. But it's, it'll be up to the members on Tuesday and Wednesday, but we want them to make an informed decision and not listen to the employer propaganda, tell them that it's a great deal when it's not. And, and we'll outline all the, all the facts. This is typical of um, employer moves. When, when you get into strike situations, they just... Well, they lie and they feed, feed nonsense to the workforce, but once they, uh, and they never learn, right? Once the workforce takes a look at it, they go, oh, geez, they're lying to us again. Imagine that. Mm. And that's kind of the attitude on the line there. Uh, Smokey, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on Kathleen Wynne's announcement. It was in Hamilton yesterday in regard to senior care. You didn't seem too happy about it. Well, i tell you something. So they should be talking to the Ontario Personal Support Workers Association. Amanda, is a, they've got a great group there. They, they, people join it voluntarily. Personal support workers join this association voluntarily. We've worked with them in the past. So what I see coming down the pipe here is there's a very cozy relationship between Service Employees International Union and the Liberal government. Uh, the head of government relations for Service Employees International Union, a staffer, he was president of the Liberal Party of Ontario. He just resigned a little while ago. Service Employees International Unions uh, funding that uh, WOW, w- w- Women of uh, uh, women Workers of Ontario. Uh, they're f- so SEIU is funding that, and that's, of course, an attack on Patrick Brown and the Tories. So, I mean, this really, really, it just sinks to high heaven in my mind. And creating this new thing, like who's going to be the employer? There's so many unanswered questions. 
There's multiple unions that represent workers in the home care sector and personal support workers. There's also a lot of employers that are non-union. I don't know how they reconcile, and I'd, I'd be interested in seeing the plan on who actually will be the employer, how they'll get their work assignments, where they'll work, all those sorts of things. And I get the private sector, the private operators have concerns too. Are they going to be put out of business? Will those workers that work there be laid off? Will they get new jobs? Will they have to apply? Will their seniority go with them? So I see it as, um, I mean, I'm in favor of uh, you know, the public and not for profit over profit, but I, as I can see it being extremely disruptive to the, the whole workforce in general. And I really believe that they should have listened to OPSWA, the Interpersonal Support Workers Association. There's Amanda and her group. They have, they have a very good plan. And, and I've met with them before. And I got asked by the, at a press conference that I did with OPSWA. They said, Smokey, if the government was to give you the... The, the government's going to give uh, uh, SEIU $250 million to build a training facility. Hmm. And I'm opposed to that because our community colleges actually teach those courses. Yeah. Like they just taught in community college. So... I, and as a reporter said to me, well, Smokey, if the government gave you the money, would you run the college? Said, no, that's not a union's job. A union's job is to represent workers. I think that they should stick with the public education system they have. There are some, I know, full bone to private uh, trainers. There's some private trainers out there that actually do a pretty good job. And there's an overcapacity of training right now. So they're going to, uh, you know, to me it looks, really does smack of a political favor. You know, one hand, you know, he scratched my back, I'll scratch yours in terms of creating something that SEIU would then have sort of a, a real leg up in uh, getting these, well, you know, will they be forced into SEIU or will the workers get a choice of the union they want? All those sorts of things. So there's a lot of unanswered questions here, but it really does look suspicious to me. Uh, would it just not make sense to do, uh, to just uh, implement all of this within the current system? Yes. Yeah, yeah. If they want to increase training... And, that, and again, OPSWA has a plan. Like they've really been instrumental in in, in uh, uh, having uh, training be standardized. Do, do you know what I mean? Like so, you can yeah. do it all inside. Hmm. You don't have to create another bureaucracy, and you don't have to create another training facility, particularly one by run by a union, uh, to achieve the goal of uh, better home care and you know more people in the sector if that's what you want. And 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 they do they do need more healthcare workers in general of all skill levels. So, uh, yeah, no, there's a much better way than creating a, yet another bureaucracy. Who, so how many bosses can one person hmm. have? How many, how many, how many lineups do you have? And wickets do you have to line up to get service for a loved one or service for yourself? I, I don't know. I, I'm just, I, I'm highly suspicious of it. I'll be looking for the details. Smokey Thomas has been with us, president of Ops. Who, Smokey, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yep, thank you. And we'll talk about cannabis sometime. We're heavily involved in that too. We'll do that. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, a forensic officer is expected to testify at the Laura Babcock murder trial, and he'll delve deep into analysis of computers that had belonged to Smitch and Millard. To talk more about all of this, Ari Goldkind is with us, a Toronto defense lawyer, and on the line now. Hello, Ari. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Pleasure. Uh, give us a little bit of an update here uh, on uh, the computer analysis that's going on. How complicated is this? How difficult is it for a jury to follow? It actually isn't once you, people on the outside realize, and this is surprising because as soon as you say jury duty, what's the first thought everybody listening? How do I get out of that? Yeah. Right? That's everybody's gut instinct. But as somebody who does jury trials week after week, I'm continually surprised 
by how diligently jurors listen and actually read evidence. So here's what's happening today. They've got binders, they've got all sorts of books on their lap tracking, uh, all sorts of records from Millard and Smith's computers, iPads. These are very important because they show the the lives these two are living. But jurors don't tune out. And one of the things, and it's kind of interesting, is that there's sort of a, a witness on the stand who sort of spoon-feeds them through it, right? So it's not like being given a homework assignment where you and I have to go home and figure out what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. It's sort of painstakingly uh, gone through, and the jurors follow on PowerPoint presentations and big screens in the courtroom, and they are listening intently. Uh, you, You use the word homework. Is there homework for jurors when this is done or their day is done? Do they still have to go and and look through stuff? Is that up to them to do? Are they told not to do that? What's the protocol there? They are essentially told not to go off and do homework, although who knows what juries talk about when they're alone, the 12 of them, because that could be considered homework as well. But they're really told to, once once the day of evidence is over, the clearer instruction from most judges is to continue on about your life. Do not do homework. Do not look at your phone or Google or text or anything about it. And the theory is that you leave these binders in the courtroom until the next day. So you don't cram, you don't do your own research, you don't try and become an expert yourself. The only time that jurors can really do the kind of homework you're asking about is once they start deliberating, a jury, and this is actually kind of interesting, because sometimes a jury will have a question based on their review of some evidence, even technical evidence, and as a lawyer sitting in the room and the juror comes in and goes, we have this question, you sit there fascinated by the fact that they really are listening and they have a very sharp question that can often tell you what they're thinking, and they're only thinking that, Scott, because they're doing their homework. How do you keep it in layman's terms so everyone understands? Is that is that a difficulty? It is a difficulty, but a good crown, and just you know, for people to know, I'm a defense lawyer, but a good crown will make sure this isn't being done in legalese, that the dots are being connected. I'll give you an example. In a lot of trials, including this one, cell phone tower records become very important because they show, for example, where Ms. Babcock's last moments would be spent. Now, you could just put a bunch of very gobbledygook records to a jury and say, connect the dots yourself of how phones ping. Or you can ask a witness, particularly an unbiased one, to draw an inference to say, when her phone went off, and I'm just making this up as an example, she was standing in Delvin Millard's kitchen, and her phone was never used again. So you really try and spoon-feed it to a jury to make it clear to them. And a good crown and a good defense lawyer, Scott, this is interesting, actually looks at jurors' faces. And if you're seeing a bunch of hands going through heads frustrated or eyes glazing over, you're not doing a good job. So you can tell when they're following you and when they're out, when they've glazed over. Very much so. And I do this very, very actively in my cases where a lot of lawyers are sitting straight ahead of the judge, looking at the judge, looking at the witness. I am looking at each of the 12 jurors because, as you may know, Scott, it's not the judge's opinion at the end of the day that matters. It's not the witness's. It's if I can't get through to at least one of those 12 jurors and make them accept that my version of events is better than the machinery of the state, 
staring at a judge is not going to do me any favors. Hmm. Uh, considering there is no body or no body has been discovered, uh, how crucial is this computer evidence? Well, it's actually quite crucial. And the no body issue is a very interesting one because a lot of people on the outside of the courtroom say, well, without a body, it's very hard to prove murder. Well, that's actually not true. Somebody actually studied this. And in about 550 cases where there was no body in a murder uh, prosecution, take a guess at the conviction rate in those cases. I'm guessing it's quite high. You got it. It's about 85 to 90 percent. Why these records are very important here is because there is no other explanation for her loss of life when you look at these records. The Crown's case becomes quite strong when you realize Dellen Millard and Mark Smith were the last people, particularly Millard, on this phone evidence to see her alive, to be near her. They, the last eight calls were to him. They have all these text messages bragging about what they're doing. And remember, Scott, one of the things that's really important in our system, and it's not easy for defense lawyers to get over, quite frankly, is sometimes you can point the finger at the police and say, they made a guy confess or they did something that wasn't kosher and, you know, there should be a technicality. When you use the accused's own words and own cell phone Mm. and the iPad that they took from one of her boyfriends that has all this important information from the day and day she disappeared, that's literally using somebody's own words against them. And the system, quite frankly, says to a jury, listen to Delvin Millard back a few years ago, not the Delvin Millard that's playing lawyer in court today. Hmm. Uh, basically, you're documenting your crime then. You really are. When you go into some of this, don't forget, and this is public, this is certainly not secret, Mark Smith made a rap video mm-hmm. bragging and putting it on the iPad that was never his to start with. That's interesting. It came from Miss Babcock's circle, you know, about burning a body and doing all of this, and they text about getting a gun, and they brag about it. And so you really are, and this is a term that I like, but maybe just makes me sound older, you're hoisting somebody on their own petard. Mm. You're using Dellen Millard's own words to show that the guy who's firing a bunch of questions off the witnesses in the court today being his own lawyer, you know, he can't get away from what he and Mark Smith were texting or what the cell phone towers say. And not only that, how do you, how do you present a defense when it's your work? Well, what you're trying, to, what they're trying to do, and again, we're in the somewhat early days of this, is trying to show that she was either suicidal mm. or it had some connection to the drug world, as if you know Al Pacino and Scarface maybe came and you know ended her life, mm-hmm. or that other people in the escorting business did it. And to your question about why these records and forensic records are so important, because they show a lot of smoke at the time of this, as it relates to Mr. Millard and. Uh, Mr. Smith, and I don't mean that as a pun given the incinerator, and when a jury has to go back to a jury room and say, well, look, does all of the evidence, even without a body, point in one unmistakable direction? And when on these computers there's a picture of a body, not you don't see the body, but of a body wrapped up in a big carpet or blanket about to be tossed in an incinerator, and Dellen Millard just bought an incinerator within five days of this, Mm. a jury is probably not going to conclude that O.J. did it. Hmm. Uh, How will he or how does one defend against your own words? 
Well, you really can't, or you can say that you're pontificating or you're bloviating or all these things we say Trump does, or you're talking out of your posterior, or you're just bragging. But he's going to have a real tough time on that, particularly given the objective pieces of information, the pictures, the fact that this poor dog is standing right over a body that seems to be in a body bag. And if you know dogs, they often won't leave the side of a human in distress. You have the incinerator. So you have all these objective pieces that make it tough for Mr. Millard to say, well, I was in Hawaii that day. And one of the things about it, and I've talked about this before, it's a bit of a different segment, is because it's first-degree murder, there's no incentive for an accused to ever plead guilty. You know what I mean? You don't get anything like you do if, if you got charged, or I got charged, Scott, with something simple. I'm always going to get a lesser sentence if I plead guilty Mm -hmm. than if I run the gauntlet and take my shot at trial. I think that's something that Parliament should one day look at. But right now, there's nothing for Dylan Millard or Mark Smith to lose, and that's why they're off on these expeditions. Uh, You know, when you talk about them documenting this on several iPhones and and, and devices and such, it, it certainly leads you to believe they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. Um, how do you parlay that into representing yourself? And I know we've talked about this before, but uh, if he's made these types of mistakes in the past, how is he not going to make them moving forward? Well, he's probably going to make them, including maybe how he presents to the jury. He may alienate or annoy the jury. But if his position is he wants his trial and he wants his day in court, people listening to this should know he did want a lawyer, but for reasons we don't have time to go into, the government, i.e. our tax dollars, did not believe that the state should pick up his legal bill, and he is of the mind that he couldn't afford other counsel. So he's not representing himself because he wants to. We all know the cliche, only a fool represents himself. But this was a judicial decision that the taxpayer was not going to pay the full freight for him to have a lawyer like me or the other very, very good lawyers in Ontario. So, Will, and we've talked about this before, Ari, will this lead to some sort of mistrial? I don't think it will, and here's why. And here's a little interesting detail. As much as people are passionate about the Millard uh, and Smith trial, there was a trial just a little while ago of the Via Rail terrorist. Do you remember that? The guy who wanted to blow up the bridge and it was on 60 Minutes? Well, guess Mm -hmm. who the judge was on that case? Hmm same judge, and this is a judge that has experience in dealing with self-represented accused Mm. on very serious cases. And what would surprise a lot of listeners to know is rather than becoming annoyed or snippy or anything else with a self-represented accused, our criminal code and our law almost dictates, and Justice Code, who's the judge here, will be very careful about this, that a judge will often bend over backwards to actually help a self-represented accused, because we do have the view that the scales are not properly balanced when he's going against two very, when the accused, who's self-repped, is going against two very experienced crowns. So a judge will make sure that the last thing his court or her court will ever be is a kangaroo court. Hmm. The fact that there are several devices here, what does that say? The fact that Millard had several cell phones? Uh problematic. I mean, try defending a drug dealer who has five phones and says, you know, it's because he really likes Uber Eats. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's a bit it's a bit of a problem. And it's not just different like than the Yahoo hacker who's bragging and Instagramming about all of his exploits. Mm. Here, there's objective evidence of locations and last time cell phones are used. 
and last time Miss Babcock ever checks Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and all of those times where her phone goes dead is literally the time that the police have a very reasonable belief that her life was taken and ended through the technology of her and their phones. You add in the rap video, some pictures they took, etc. As I said, you don't theoretically have a good reason for the police to be looking for Pablo Escobar today, hmm. given Mr. Millard's belief that maybe this had something to do with the drug trade. Will we see Christina Nudja, uh, Nudga, uh, Millard's other girlfriend in this love triangle? Will she uh, be uh, testifying, do you think? I think it's possible. I mean, she may be an unknown quality, and I have to you know, keep my answer to that. But I think it's quite possible, given that she has some evidence to give. Although, a Crown could make a tactical decision if the Crown feels that she will only muddy the waters or be an unreliable witness or maybe still have some feelings for him or not have some feelings for him. My view is the Crown has a very, very straightforward case. And sometimes, even though you have witnesses available to you, you may not want to put somebody on the stand who's just going to add drama into an otherwise fairly drama-free proceeding. Uh, in other words, uh, the Crown wouldn't want to, I guess, complicate this too much if, if they do feel they have a strong case? If they feel they have a strong case, Miss Nuja may be an unknown quality. You may not know how she's going to perform on the stand, or the Crown may not feel comfortable that she's going to deliver as promised, or maybe she has some feelings for Mr. Millard. But for a series of reasons, you could call her if she's on side. Just with the evidence that we have now, I don't know that the jury can't draw the conclusion or inference that they're going to be asked to draw about this life triangle. I'm not so sure the jury needs to hear it from Ms. Nuja. Hmm. Uh, getting, bu- getting back to representation and the whole money angle, uh, would legal aid know and be able to, uh, to, to, to investigate and find out how much money Millard had? How would they arrive at the conclusion that, no, this guy's got money, we're not representing him? There are hearings in the Superior Court. They're often called Robotham applications. That's the boring way of saying an accused comes forward and says, I don't have the money to do it. Legal Aid would want very significant information from Mr. Millard or anybody. And to answer your question in a more general way, if Legal Aid felt that full records or forensic accountings or such weren't being provided honestly or openly, Legal Aid would likely turn that matter down. And remember, Mr. Millard, you know, this is not uh, uh, contentious comes from a very, very wealthy family. And most people that legal aid cover, particularly given the expense of a first-degree murder, come from a very impecunious background. So the fact that legal aid did turn him down because he, they felt he does have money, is that enough to uh, ward off a mistrial? Uh, yes, the mistrial only happened... Okay, so that's a good question. He'll have an automatic right of appeal because it's a first-degree murder. But you have to point to an injustice that happened in the case that was capable of making him essentially look not guilty. And when you have Justice Code, a very well-respected judge who's probably going to be on the Ontario Court of Appeal within five years, bending over backwards to make sure the trial is fair, it's very, very tough to come and say your trial was unfair even though you're unrepresented. And remember, the evidence here, as we started the segment about, is going to be very objective. It's going to be very forensic. And 
Delvin Millard is not the only one in the room. There is Mark Smitch in the room who is represented by counsel. So any slack that Mr. Millard may not know how to cross-examine the way I do or other good lawyers do, you certainly have another lawyer in the room that if he feels there's meat on the bone to cross-examination or attack, is certainly going to do that. That being said, will one try to blame the other more? That's a great question. And just for people who don't know how or when that happens, that in legal circles is called a cutthroat defense. And there's a lot of money sort of being bet in a colloquial way that one of these guys will turn on the other. I'm not so sure that will happen. And here's why. If Millard is as smart, and I say that term with respect, I don't have any respect for him, but nobody's suggesting he's a complete fool or dummy. If these guys and Mark Smith's lawyer are as clever as I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, the same way I told you the success rate of no-body prosecutions was high, about 85-90, everybody in my business knows that cutthroat defenses are usually unsuccessful. Mm. Juries usually are very unimpressed by it, and they basically say to themselves, these two are peas in a pod, and if they want to cut each other's throat, we'll let them do it behind bars for life in jail. Hmm. Uh, Your thoughts on Millard's performance today? He is an interesting character. He has sometimes to be, uh, and right now the Crown's going through this, so Millard hasn't gotten into his part, but so far he hasn't embarrassed himself. He's let his emotions or his, he has a bit of a sarcastic nature, but so do the rest of us sometimes. Hmm. He's let that come through. You know, for a guy accused of first-degree murder, he certainly, he asks some questions that are relevant. I can't knock him. Do I think a lawyer would do a very different job? Sure. But, you know, let's hypothetically think he's innocent. He, he, he's in way over his head here in a difficult spot. But even if he's not innocent, I can't say that he's embarrassing himself in the courtroom. He's following the judge's commands. He's asking lawyerly-like questions. So that's one thing I cannot knock him for. Hmm. Ari Goldkind has been with us, Toronto defense lawyer, commenting on the murder trial. Uh, Of course, uh, no body, but uh, nevertheless, evidence in uh, the disappearance of Laura Babcock. Ari, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Canada continues to remain an attractive destination for Central Americans in the U.S. who are likely to be deported. You might remember uh, uh, during the summer, uh, a lot of uh, asylum seekers who were originally from Haiti and, of course, fled after the earthquakes there uh, over a decade ago, I guess now, uh, they were granted, as they were in Canada, temporary status uh, to uh, to of course uh, escape the uh, the tough conditions that were in Haiti, especially after the earthquake. Uh, however, though the uh, U.S. government has decided, Trump has decided that that's not the way he wants to go, and uh, he's basically telling all those people to get out or go back home or do anything. Uh, what they are doing is is ending up in Canada. To talk more about all of this, Joel Sandaluk is with us, partner, my ma'am Sandaluk, Kingwell LLP, and with us now. Uh, Joel, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. It's my pleasure. So why the second wave? Uh, we certainly remember when this happened uh, during the summer, uh, and then it sort of lightened up for a while. How do you explain this? 
Basically, what's happened is the U.S. government has decided to terminate what's called a temporary protected status program for Nicaraguan nationals who are in the United States. We're talking about 2,500 people in total in this program. Uh, so what happens is the United States uh, will grant temporary protected status to certain individuals in the United States based on things like, for example, war, natural disaster in the case of Haiti, uh, or other reasons. And what will happen is those people will have valid temporary status. They're entitled to remain in the U.S., live there, work there, study there, and basically have a life until such time as the, stat- as the program comes to an end. And what's happened now is that one program has ended. It's a Nicarag- program for Nicaraguans, uh, where it will be ending, uh, not today or tomorrow, but by January 2019. And there's a couple of other programs that are being looked at in respect of Hondurans and Salvadorians, who are, there are considerably more Hondurans and Salvadorians uh, than there are Nicaraguans, who are a small number of people by any measure. What is the sense of running these programs? Basically what happens is in the United States, they don't have a way of regularizing the status of people who are in that country illegally. They have to do something, because what's happened is they've got a gigantic illegal population, and there are certain people that have a very real and compelling need to, to stay away from Haiti, or Iraq, or Afghanistan, or some other country that's ravaged by war or natural disaster. What they, have, they have to do something with them, and there's a general acceptance by governments that it makes more sense to have people in the system, in the economy, than it has to, than it is to have them living underground. The problem is, is that there's no way, to, despite that many of these people from uh, Nicaragua have been living and working in the United States for up to 20 years, there's no way for those people to regularize their status and make it permanently as you would in most other countries. Now what's happening is these programs are coming to an end, and uh, these people are being told, you know, that's it, you, you know, it's time for you to go. But the point of the programs is basically to give people, you know, a means to exist in the United States when they have no other country to go to. But are any of these designed with an end game? Because it all sounds great until you kick everybody out. I mean, like, what's the plan B here? I mean, either they become contributing members to society and they stay, or you kick them out? You know, a lot of U.S. immigration policy is made on an ad hoc basis, which means that there's different programs for different countries. Uh, Cuba is a good example where there's, you know, the rules typically don't apply to Cubans or haven't for years. And what happens is you get these this weird mish, mishmash of policies. A lot of people get left in the lurch. It's different from a country like Canada, for example, which will, in some cases, like with the recent uh, Syrian arrivals, will simply grant them permanent resident status and give people a permanent new existence in Canada if they want it. Or in the case of Kosovo refugees around the turn of the century, where what happens, they were granted, they were issued temporary resident permits, and then those temporary resident permits carried with them the ability to become permanent residents after they'd been residing in Canada for a few years. So in each of those cases, people were put on a pathway. Either they were given permanent status or they were allowed to get permanent status if they wanted to have it after a period of time. What happened in the United States is these people just remained temporarily there. And there was a recognition that you just can't pull out the rug from somebody and just kick them out of the country. It's not reasonable. It's incredibly inhumane. Uh, so what, what happened is that's largely, that sentiment is largely what's kept those people in the United States for as long as they have been. Hmm. Now what's happened is you've got an American administration that's less concerned about the humanity of its legislation and is willing to pull the rug out from under these people and send them back to their country of nationality. That's why, you know, that's why we're in the situation that we're in right now.
what about Canada? How does it handle this situation? Because again, I understand that that uh, we took in Haitian uh, asylum seekers as well during the earthquake um, during the earthquakes there, uh, and did the same sort of thing. How do we handle it? What we typically will do is we'll have what's called a moratorium of removal. So it was in existence for Haitians. It's not in existence anymore. So that was you know, part of the public information campaign that the Canadian government tried to uh, press in the United States. Um, but there's a number of countries where they have what they call a moratorium of removal. And they will not deport a person to their country of nationality if, uh, or sorry, I should say, unless they are, for example, a criminal or somebody who's suspected of a, being a security threat or something of that nature. So, for example, if you were an Iraqi Kurd in Canada today without status, you wouldn't automatically get status, but you also wouldn't be deported to Iraq unless you had a criminal record in any country. Hmm. Um, but then what would happen is you would have the ability to apply for permanent status or at least temporary status to remain in Canada, which you could then convert to permanent status. The United States has never had that safety valve. And because they never had that safety valve, they have this massive population of people who are uh, continue to be in temporary status under the program. I think the current estimate is about 435,000 people living under one temporary program or another in the United States. Uh, so don't you have to design these with an end game, an end plan? I mean, it's great to take people in, but then what do you do with them afterwards? You absolutely do. But I mean, you know, but this isn't the product of a rational immigration program. Hmm. Uh, this is a product of a, you know, a uh, grab bag of uh, ad hoc policies and compromises that has led these people to be in the situation they are today. The program is incredibly poorly constructed. The absence of a pathway to permanent status in the United States is a massive oversight, and it causes a great deal of human suffering and a great deal of uncertainty in lives. And not only that, I mean, the thing you've got to remember is these people have been living in the United States, they've been working, they've been having children, and they, you know, by and large, are incredibly productive members of society. And what happens is when a country ignores these people, they basically impoverish themselves by, uh, you know, essentially... Uh, you know, kicking out people who really make it richer. Hmm. When will this second wave hit? Uh, and you're saying these are people mostly originally from Nicaragua. Uh, the current group of people are Nicaraguans. Uh, their status will not be renewed past January 2019. So, you know, um, if there is a wave of these people, you would expect it to come probably sometime in 2018, possibly, uh, either in the summer or the fall of 2018 is when they'd be coming. Um, the thing to remember about these, uh, this group of people from Nicaragua is there are currently approximately 2,500 Nicaraguans on uh, temporary protected status. This compares to 46,000 Haitians uh, who were a part of a much larger population group who crossed the border. So it's not, I mean, it's not to minimize the number of people. 2,500 people is still a lot of people. But when you consider that uh, over the course of the last uh, year, there were approximately 50,000 refugee claims made in Canada, even if every single Nicaraguan came to Canada, honestly, the, the impact would be a, you know, better described as a hiccup than a crisis. Mm. Uh, obviously, lots of uh, chatter in regard to this over the summer when uh, Quebec was being inundated and, and you know, had to set up uh, facilities just to accommodate all of this. Uh, and then we understand about half of them were sent home. Is that correct? 
I'm not sure of the actual figures of how many people uh, have been sent home. The last uh, statistic I saw was that approximately 69% of them were successful in their refugee claims. 69%. 69%. So whether that means half of them were sent home, it may, not, it may mean that not all of them were eligible to claim refugee protection. Um, but my understanding is of the ones who were admitted and permitted to claim refugee protection, 69% were approved. And I think you've got to remember from the summer as well is that a lot of these people had asylum claims in the United States. A lot of them were from Somalia. There was a large Somali population in, uh, I believe, Minnesota that crossed the border in North Dakota. And, uh, you know, what happened was these, these guys came, and you, it's not an easy thing. I think there's a, there's a misperception that Canada's system is generous. It's not. Uh, in order to remain in Canada as a refugee, uh, you have to establish that you have a well-founded fear of persecution in your country of nationality. Uh, what that means is that you have to show that you are in physical danger in your country of nationality. So it's a difficult test to meet. And the fact that 69% of them approximately met it um, really shows that people who were leaving the United States were leaving because of incredibly compelling circumstances. Uh, the ones that, didn't, that were not accepted, where would they be sent back to? They would be sent back to their country of nationality. Right. Um, when so not the United States. No, when somebody crosses Canada, crosses into Canada at the legal border crossing to make a claim from inside of Canada, they they're not able to be returned to the United States. So what happens is, <clears throat> excuse me, they have to be returned to their country of citizenship, or if they have status in some other country, um, you know, they'd they'd have to they would be sent to those uh, to those places. So for example, you know, if you were uh, from Pakistan and you crossed into Canada through the United States, but weren't detected, and you simply appeared in Canada to make uh, a claim for refugee protection, and you were going to get deported after that, what would happen is the Canadian government would have to deal with the Pakistani government, obtain travel documents, and then remove that person to Pakistan. So are we just to assume that the latest wave, when it does come in, will be doing it through illegal border crossings? I mean, obviously they would be, right? Well, I mean, the ones who are not eligible to claim at a, at a, a regular border crossing uh, will probably be crossing into, into Canada. Uh, I would. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the Canadian government has actually been, you know, pretty adept at setting up uh, processing centers. Uh, as you said, I mean, in Montreal, there was a temporary facility, and I think it was in the Big O. And now there are some winterized trailers that have been set up to deal with this uh, an anticipated number of people who be crossing over the winter months. You know, this is something that Canada has done pretty well. And the truth is that this government, as much as you can criticize it for certain aspects of its uh, refugee uh, policy, uh, has been far better able to deal with a a much larger group of people crossing from the American border than previous governments were able to deal with uh, boats of arrivals from Sri Lanka who entered uh, Canada to BC a few years ago. Um, That was accompanied by a mass hysteria by the government. Uh, this has been much more rational, much more calm, and a much more effective uh, management. Uh, MPs, again, heading into the United States to uh, tell those that might be thinking of coming here that it is not all uh, roses and that not everybody will be uh, accepted and that it's, tw- it's quite a rigorous process. Ha- has any Canadian official, any Canadian officials talked to the United States about this and explained to them what's happening? Are they aware of what's going on? You know, there's in Canada and the United States have such a close diplomatic relationship. I have to imagine that there's a great deal of back and forth between the two countries. That American officials are very well aware of the impact of their of their policies on Canada. Um, you know, at, at the highest of levels, has it has it been discussed? The short answer is 
I don't know. Um, it seems like this type of policy is something that the United States has been really committed to. So I doubt that uh, any uh, official communication between the two, go- the two governments would have an impact. Uh, doesn't that seem odd to you? I mean, like this was created uh, for a reason, the, the, you know, uh, this whole policy. Uh, is this the spirit of the agreement? I mean, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it almost seems like a loophole. I mean, should we not be challenging this yeah. in any way? Well, the, I mean, the problem with the policy is that it, it rests on, agree- on an agreement between Canada and the United States. And whenever you have an agreement between two parties, especially two neighbors, there's an expectation that you know, each neighbor is going to behave in a way of, in, a, in good faith, not only towards the other neighbor, but also towards the people who are dependent upon it. And if you have a neighbor who is basically being a jerk, um, and your only recourse is to confront that neighbor, uh, the reality is you may not have the same kind of remedy you would if you had a higher power to go to, a court uh, or somebody else. In this case, uh, much as the United States would be held hostage if Canada were suddenly to treat people who are living here in an incredibly inhumane or uh, unsympathetic way, uh, we are largely subject to the policies that they, uh, that they implement. What we have to do, I think, as a, as a nation is make sure that we don't allow ourselves to be compromised in the same way. You know, just because your neighbor is being a jerk doesn't mean that you have to be in order to ensure that your interests are uh, protected. Mm. Uh, what will MPs say to those thinking of coming here? I think what mostly is going on is that MPs are traveling to different communities. I understand that a lot of the MPs are either of Haitian descent or uh, Middle Eastern descent or uh, Central American descent. They're speaking to those communities and saying, look, you know, a lot of people have the sense that when you cross into Canada, you kind of sign your name and you know, there you are, you're, you're permitted to remain, you can, you can work, you can study, you can find a place to live. Um, and what people need to understand is that that's not the case. There are legal tests that apply. You're going to have to establish that you're going to be, uh, uh, that you're going to be tested, and if you fail the test, you're going to be removed. And what a lot of people don't understand is that if they come to Canada, make a refugee claim, and get rejected, they'll be removed from their country of nationality probably far faster than if they just sit and wait things out in the United States without status and join the already gigantic population of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Yeah, because it would seem that you can't flip a switch and change this problem. You're, you're going to affect way too many people. I mean, uh, d- does the U.S. care that Canada is taking in its asylum seekers? I mean, or is this what they're looking for? I don't know that Canada really factors into the U.S.'s policy in this regard, because, I mean, even as many people as Canada takes in, um, you know, there were about 15,000 border crossers. You gotta remember, this is out of a population in the United States of uh, temporary protected people of over 435,000. The United States is 10 times our size with a gigantic population of illegal immigrants. Um, the, any pressure that we take off of the United States by giving people asylum or allowing them to come and join family here uh, is probably just the smallest, smallest release of pressure uh, for American policy purposes. So I doubt that we even really factor into their considerations in a major way. Uh, do you think that all of a sudden the taps will open up even greater? I mean, as you mentioned, it's, it's barely even enough to make a drop. I mean, would the, do you see that changing? You know, it's, it's funny. When you talk about international migration, it's very difficult to predict how things will play out. I don't think anybody in Germany five years ago would have, protect, would have predicted the uh, human movement into that country that's happened over the course of the last couple of years. Um, so I would never say never, 
Um, but at the same time, you know, you've always got to remember that uh, that you know, flow between Canada and the United States is very well regulated, especially given the massive open border that we have. And it's important for us not to, you know, essentially lose our heads. The other thing about the United States is a lot of this is a is a response to a particular government in the United States. Governments change, and you know, in the past, you know, I've heard anecdotally from immigration officers that. Canada has attempted to monitor the flow of undocumented migrants into uh, into our country by, you know, uh, monitoring unmanned border crossings. Generally speaking, in the past, for years and years, the flow, the net flow, was from Canada into the United States. There's no reason to believe that it wouldn't change again two years from now or five years from now. So, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I'm not worried that the sky is falling in the United States. I think sometimes temporarily it might feel like that. But in, in terms of a long-term view of things, uh, my expectation is we'll kind of look back on these years and shrug and move on. Uh, Canada, obviously a land of immigrants. Most parents were in some form. Um, and, and we hear all the time, Canada needs the population. Does, uh, does the U.S. not need immigrants? Everybody needs immigrants. Every Western nation needs immigrants. Um, the United Canada has been by far the greatest beneficiary of the tightening up of the immigration in the United States. Um, whether it's their Muslim bans, whether it's their restrictions or coming restrictions on H-1B visas. What's happened is there's a lot of American employers uh, that are looking to locate into Canada precisely to get access to a steady stream of foreign labor that they can't get otherwise if they remain in the United States. What's happened, I think, is that Canada will walk away from this, uh, this policy, a series of policies in the United States, as a clear winner, whether in terms of foreign students or foreign workers, or uh, opening up headquarters of foreign corporations in this country. I think, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we, every, we all need immigrants. The difference is that Canada recognizes that in a way that a lot of other countries around the world simply do not. Joel Sandaluk has been with us, partner, my ma'am, Sandaluk Kingwell, LLP, talking about uh, Canada's uh, asylum seekers and another wave may be coming within the next year or so. Joel, thank you for the time and insight. Is always much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.